Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to everybody here in this room and all of you joining us online. So the Zionsville School Corporation declared this week Mental Health Week. So in our community, mental health in February equals Florida and Deep South. So all of you who are joining us from a place where the breeze feels quite different than it feels across our parking lot this morning. Amen, right? Uh, Glad you're here. Thanks for those of you braving it, sticking it out in the north. We're trusting Jesus to help us with our mental health in February here. Amen. (laughs) So I hope you received a note sheet on the way in. If you haven't done that, you're welcome to get up out of your seats. They're in the back tables there. Online hosts can direct you online and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Easy place to find opening page of your scriptures uh, for this morning. So in 2021... The kind of labor research data has come out that said 47 million people left their jobs in 2021. Can you just process that for a minute? At the rate of four to five million per month were exiting their jobs. So the labor research folks have come up with a term that many of you have seen scroll across the headlines. They're calling what we're living through in the human resource era the great resignation. The great resignation. Now, those of you who lead and manage people, uh, you've been feeling the full brunt of this in conversations I have with your small business owner or someone who just manages groups in the marketplace. When I ask you how things are going at work, a frequent comment I hear is, we're just having a really, really difficult time finding good help, good people. One guy who owns his own construction company, here's how he put it. He said, quote, we don't have a work problem. We've got plenty of work. We have a worker problem. We can't find people willing to do the work. Anybody feeling that today? That we don't have a work problem. We've got a worker problem to the tune of the great resignation. So as we step into this series this morning, I've entitled the series, God and Mondays. What does our worship on Sundays have to do with the reality of our work that we face on Monday morning? And that's what we're going to be looking at for the next several weeks. And we're going to start this morning in Genesis 1 to 3, and we're going to lay out what I'm calling a theology of work. We're going to get kind of first things first here. We got to lay some foundational pillars because C.S. Lewis said, if you put first things first, second things are thrown in. If you put second things first, you lose both first and second things. And so we got to get first things first when it comes to work. And so we're going to start where the Bible starts in the beginning, God. So our first pillar under this theology of work, I put it in your notes this way, work is a gift from God not a byproduct of sin. And some of you are saying, yeah, you ought to come to work with me tomorrow. Hang with me. It's a gift from God, not a byproduct of sin. Genesis 1 begins this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was circle formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. So the starting point for all reality is the starting point where the Bible says it starts. In the beginning, God. God is the great beginner from which everything else gets its beginning. 
So the origin of reality is here, in the beginning God. And you say, where did God come from? The Bible is explaining there's never a time when he wasn't. God has always been. That's the definition of eternality, infinite. It's tough for our finite minds to wrap around it. But the point is, God's always been, and he's the great explanation for everything else that is. Hence, Genesis 1 says, uses verbs like this, God created, God said, God separated, God made, God called, gathered, produced, set, blessed. All these verbs filling Genesis 1. God is an active, creative, working God. And so today in our culture, I think it's helpful to be reminded where these amazing disciplines of learning find their origin. Like astronomy and botany, and anthropology, and biology, and zoology, and all these other ologies, they all find their origins, hear this, in theology. Theology is the basis from which all the other ologies come. And we're a bit on struggle street as a culture with this right now in our educational systems. Because when you try to remove God out of the basis of the foundation for learning, Genesis 1 says you're left with formless and empty. Huh, I wonder if that's a fair description to some of what's unraveling in our educational institutions today. Remember a few weeks ago when I quoted Harvard University, first higher learning institution in our country. In their handbook, they say this, that the basis of all learning and knowledge is God in Christ crucified. You can't learn without a foundation of in the beginning God. And so the origin for work starts with the origin for everything else that is. It is God who came up with this grand, wonderful, challenging idea called work. And he says this in verse 31 at the end of chapter 1. He sees all that he had made and he calls it very good. Do you see that in 31? I call that the feel of the finish. That's how some of you felt on Friday afternoon this week. You had one of those weeks, you knocked it out of the park, you finished, you met the quota, you completed the projects, you got the bonus, you got the affirmation, you received the promotion, you were bone-weary tired when you were driving home on Friday, but man, you looked back over your week and you thought, man, that was good. That was good. I worked really hard. That was good. That's the feel of the finish. That's what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were doing on the first week of creation. Now, I know all of you have super productive weeks. I know you're super productive in what you do. But let me just say this. I think it all sits in the shadow of the most productive week the world has ever seen. God sets the bar for productivity. Would you agree with me? Genesis 1. When you travel about this world, when you used to travel about this world a lot more, when you got on planes and went to other countries, you remember when we used to do that? Remember how you'd fly around and you just... You'd look out the window of your airplane and you were flying over mountain ranges and it would take your breath away at times, especially because you're in Indiana and you just don't have a lot of things to look at from the air. So then you go, wow, look at these parts of the world. It's unbelievable. Six days of creation. God created, formed, shaped, blessed, made. He's the ultimate workhorse. It's the most productive week the world has ever seen. This is the God that we worship and serve. And hear this now. No sin yet in your Bible. We're not to the sin page yet. I know it's coming quick. It hits page three. You're on page one and two. No sin. It's beautiful. It's good. It's a gift. God created it. He called and blessed it, which, by the way, tells me when we get to heaven, I just, 
I think we're going to have to wrap our hearts around this. Like, do you know work is going to be in heaven? Now, for some of you, that is super energizing because you have a hard time when it comes to stepping away from work. You can handle vacation for maybe a week, maybe two, but by the end of that second week, you are tapping your foot and you are... You are looking to put the hands to the plow and get back to work. That's part of how God made you. You're made in his image. We'll get to that in a minute. But heaven is going to be filled with work. Now listen, redeemed, not the way we experience it fully here, but it's, 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 gonna, it's a gift and it's going to be a part of our eternal. It's like we're going to eternally experience producing and creating and blessing for all of eternity. Now, those of you a little bit struggling with work, this isn't super encouraging. Some of you have a PhD in rest. And let me just say to those of you who struggle with getting up and getting after it, eternity is going to, right, it'd be wise for you to use these years training for the days when you're reigning and ruling with Christ in heaven. It's not just going to be eternal rest in the way you think and we think of rest. Because you know, rest only gets its definition from work. Now, come on, somebody needs to fill that. Somebody's got some conversations with some folks, perhaps in their own house or on their own work teams, and you could use this conversation at some point. Rest gets its definition from work. God, six days, work, produce, accomplish, create, then he rested. A little bit generationally, we've got a whole segment of people who are growing up with a real strong focus on the rest who've lost sight of the work. And we've got to redeem. It's both. Now listen, my generation and me, we struggle with stopping to rest. But there's a group struggling with getting after it and getting about working, producing, accomplishing, creating. Because your resting only gets definition when you're resting from something. Okay, that's just for me, I guess. All right. So God, the work is a gift from God. It's a gift, not a byproduct of sin. Pillar number one, theology of work. Second pillar, a core aspect then of our Imago Dei. Imago Dei is Latin for image of God. A core aspect of our Imago Dei is work. Look at this, Genesis 1, 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, that's Imago Day right there, image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So notice both man and woman stamp with the Imago Day. That clarifies the value question. So we got all kinds of confusion today with value and role going on with gender discussions. Values established with Imago Day. There's distinction of roles as we all understand as we try to work together in this world. But if you blur value and role, then it gets all messed up. Here's value. You're all equally created Imago Dei. You're stamped with it. And now look what's inherent. A part of your personhood is this. Look, Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. No sin yet. Not. It's not there. This is still perfect. This is still the great, blessed, beautiful, created world without sin. God created it, blessed it, made Adam and Eve in his image to work, take care, lead, have dominion, and rule over it. That's unbelievable. And so part of your personhood, part of what it means to be a human in this world is to live into a six-in-one rhythm. For six days, work, produce, accomplish, create, and one day you rest. 
Hebrew word Shabbat, cease, Sabbath, replenish, renew. Six and one. That's hardwired into what it means to be a person. And if you've ever gone through stretches of your life when you weren't able to live fully into your six and one, you feel this. Sometimes when we abuse the six and one long enough, here's what I've learned illness becomes my Sabbath. You with me? Because I'm pretty hard-headed, and I have a hard time stopping, and usually God uses my body to lay me out, and I'm, staring in the, I'm laying in the bed, staring at the ceiling fan with a fever, and my body's breaking down. I've got like, insert, in, like, here's your Sabbath, Simpson. You're in the bed for 48 hours. I'm shutting you down. Now, that's not the best way to handle it. You with me? And some of you have gone through patterns in your life and your body is communicating to you, you're made for six and one, not like 21 and one. That's not how it works. God says, no, six days, you get after it. You work hard. You work in the image of a God who's the ultimate workhorse. You're productive. You give it your best. Yes. But then one day, you rest. You replenish. You renew. And this is why the times we feel most fully alive in this life is often connected to meaningful work. When you think about the times when you just feel so full of life and just like, it's tied to usually something where you've put your hands to the plow of meaningful work and you're seeing fruitfulness. That's six in one stuff. That's Imago Day stuff. That's a gift from God. I read the story this week about the creator of the statue of the sculptor who made the Statue of Liberty. Did you know it was made by a French sculptor? His name was Frederick Bartholdi. And here's a picture of the head of the Statue of Liberty. He made the head first. And it was a gift to the country of America from the country of France. And in the World Fair in Paris in 1886, he put this on display. And he let everybody kind of walk around and see the head there in Paris. And the section was made with seven points on the crown. You see the seven points there. And he said it represents the seven oceans and the seven continents of the world. And hundreds and thousands of people made their way to just look at the first section of the head. And of course, we know eventually he developed the rest of the body. Well, in 2017, Kaylin, our youngest daughter, and I, we went and had a little trip to New York. Here's a picture of Kaylin in front, Statue of Liberty. We went to New York. We went to the Statue of Liberty. Massive structure. I mean, Lady Liberty, as she's fully robed, do you know that that's the Roman goddess Libertas? That's what it's figured after. It's the goddess of freedom. And do you know what Lady Liberty's shoe size is? 879. Do you know what her waist size is? Ladies don't like this conversation now, right? 35 feet around. That's Lady Liberty's waist. Well, when Kayla and I were there, we wanted to go up to the crown. You had to kind of do a little, get different tickets and wait in a different line, but we eventually made our way up to the crown in that spiral staircase. Here's a picture of us at the top of the crown. And what we were amazed by, now this is 20, Kayla wants you to know it's 2017, five years ago. She's a high school girl who doesn't enjoy looking at her middle school self. I think she's beautiful in all areas of life. But I was supposed to insert the editorial to all of you. <laughs> okay, Kaylin, I love you. Okay, back. Thank you for letting me use your pictures. So we were up in this section of the crown. Here's what we were taken back by. The intricate detail 
of the crown itself just blew us away. Inside the crown even, just the way the sculptor, just how they fashioned it. And then we learned through the course of the tour that Bartholdi, the original sculptor, he spent as much time and put such intricate detailed work in the crown of the crown, on the surface of the crown. Now, why is that so significant? 20 years before the airplane or flight was invented. He spent so much time on a surface of the sculptor, as much as the arms and the legs and everything that he thought everyone else would see, he made sure whenever anyone got to see it, which in his era, he probably thought no one's going to see it, it was just as beautifully made as everything that would be visible. That's someone working in the image. That's a Mago Day. That's someone who understands their work is an act of worship. Here's the New Testament language or application to what I want, what that French sculptor Bartholdi, I think, was living into. I have no idea about his spiritual background or not, but I think he's a great example of Colossians 3, 23 and 4. Paul's language to working in the image of God is this. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Look at this sentence. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving. Do you see that? This is the Imago Dei. They're not just working. That Bartholdi isn't just working for all these people at the World Fair to see it. He's like, there's someone that's like, in light of the gifts God's given me, I'm going to work and I'm going to give it my best because this is my act of worship. It's part of my six-in-one rhythm. It's a gift to be able to put it to the plow this way. One of the first jobs I ever had in high school, I started working in Newton, Iowa for a muffler warehouse. Now listen, muffler warehouse in central Iowa in the dead of winter, it is, it is cold now. So I quickly had to go get a pair of Carhartts. You know, I got one of those big, thick Carhartts, brown, insulated. And then they handed me an orange stocking cap, bright orange stocking cap. I guess it's for safety features in the warehouse. They wouldn't hit me or something. But anyway, when I put the, or- when I put the brown Carhartts on and I put the bright orange stocking cap on, hmm, and you see my physique and build. Picture it in high school, just as beautiful as now. All the warehouse workers called me the Crayola Kid. (laughs) They're like, hey, Crayola Kid, hey, get over here, do this. They pull a punch list. This is back in the days when we had like printed punch lists for the warehouse. And a semi would pull up and we'd go around the warehouse and we'd get muffler clamps and tailpipes and all these other things. And I'd come to a box of muffler clamps. It was all busted up and it looked like a bunch of them had fallen out. And I'm like, hey, guys, I... I don't think we should use this box. I'm not sure how many are in there. We had to find a new box. And the guys in the warehouse say, hey, Crayola Kid, good enough for who it's for. Throw it on the truck. Hmm. I find an exhaust pipe, and it looked like the exhaust pipe, like the fork truck had kind of hit it and mangled it and bent it up a little bit. I don't think it's going to work very well for this, wherever this is landing, in some muffler warehouse or some muffler shop somewhere. I said, guys, I think we need to find another tailpipe. Hey, Crayola Kid, good enough for who it's for. Throw it on the truck. Now listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, good enough for who it's for is at a whole new level. This is why I think followers of Jesus should set the bar and the standard for work ethic in the marketplace. Because we're made in the image of a God who's a Genesis 1 working God. 
We're made in the image of an ultimate workhorse. We're made in the image of one who says, I produced, I created, I blessed, I made, I made you in my image. I'm empowering you by my spirit. You give your best. You do Colossians 3. Not for your human masters, but my boss is this or my coworkers are that. No, you do it unto the Lord. It's the Lord Christ you are serving. This is a pillar for the theology of work. It is a gift from God. And I think we as followers of Jesus ought to set the standard in the marketplace when it comes to working. We ought to get after it and give it our best and work with passion and diligence even to the crown of the sculptor who who knows who will see it. We know this, the Lord Christ will see it and that's good enough for me. I'm doing it as unto him. So I work with integrity. I work with skill. I work with passion and diligence as an act of worship. So two pillars so far in a theology of work. First is to understand work is a gift from God, not a byproduct of sin. And secondly, because it is a gift from God and we're made in His image, part of being stamped, part of understanding the Imago Dei, stamped in the hard wirings of our personhood is work. You're made to live into a rhythm of six and one. And then thirdly, even work at its best, it's still broken. Some of you are like, finally, he's getting to the part of real, it's broken. Yeah, it's still broken. Because in Genesis 2, verse 17, God's got this beautiful garden that he has created. He's so happy with his scene that he has made. And then he's got a tree in the middle. He puts a tree in the middle. He calls it the knowledge of good and evil. And he puts a fence around the tree. And he says to Adam and Eve, you're free to eat from any tree in this wonderful garden except that tree with the fence around it. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, keep your hands off of it. Now, the questions beg to be answered, why put the tree there in the first place? I mean, God, why did you even insert it there in the first place? I mean, you made this beautiful garden. Why even put the fence around? Why have that in all? Think, now, think with me about this, all right? Isn't the essence of freedom, isn't at the core of the essence of freedom, the ability to choose the alternative? If there's no tree with a fence around it, is there true freedom for Adam and Eve to choose to honor, obey, and worship and follow God's commands or not? Because is not the essence of freedom the ability and capacity to do the opposite? That's true freedom. If there was no fence around the tree, how would God really know in the heart of Adam and Eve a freedom that they would have to choose to do what he's asked them to do? Are you tracking with me? Something we value in our humanness is the freedom to choose to love. I think at the foundation of love is this essence of the freedom to choose. Now listen, I know this is really hard because you look at our world and you go, God, really? Like, are you sure? Like the way you set this up is the best possible way to set this up? And God would say, yeah, the best of all possible worlds that we're living in is this, is this world. God made the best of all possible worlds. Because at the core of it is this freedom his creatures have then to choose to honor him. Aren't you grateful that we have the freedom to choose today to come, to gather, to offer our hearts, our attention, our minds, to worship God, to love and serve him? You, no one's forced you to do any of that. God says, I value that in the midst of my original creation so much that the alternative then has to exist. Or that's not true freedom. If there's no tree and no fence, there's no freedom. 
And God says, no, better world is this. A tree with a fence and boundaries are clear and people given the potential to choose good or choose evil. Fast forward it out and here's our world. Humans have the capacity to do unbelievable, breathtaking goodness in this world. We see it all the time. All the stories of humans doing amazing acts of sacrificial goodness in this world. And equally so, we can destroy and darkness and evil. And the level of harm we can do to one another and to this world is in the category of breathtaking as well. Yes. And God says that's the best of all possible worlds we could have. And we have to rest in that. And that's where work now is thrust into this. Because Adam and Eve, they know what they ought to do. That's Genesis 2, 17. They know the command. They know. Any tree but that tree. They know. And the one sentence sentence definition of sin in your Bible is James 4, 17. Here's what it says. Anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. That's like a commentary on my life. Anybody else? We know what we ought to do. We know how we ought to handle these things. We just don't always do it. Yeah, God calls that sin. And so Adam and Eve know what they ought to do, and they don't do it. They step across the fence, they climb the fence, take the fruit, eat the fruit. And this is theologically called the fall of mankind into sin. That's what Genesis 3 is. Look at verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? So after they fall and they take this fruit, he calls out, where are you? Now listen, if God was just a God of justice, what would verse 9 read? What did he say would happen if they ate their fruit? If they ate the fruit from the forbidden tree, what did he say would happen to them? They would die. So if God was just about justice, Genesis 3 verse 9 would say, oh, and the Lord God struck Adam and Eve dead. And we'd be like, oh, man, that was a short story. Uh, Over. But God's first picture of grace in the Bible is Genesis 3 9. God goes beyond justice and he gives them what they don't deserve. He gives them grace. He works with them and gives them another chance. Aren't you grateful God's like, this is the God we worship and serve. That when we fall short and we don't always get it right, when we step over the fence and we take the forbidden fruit, he calls out to us. He keeps coming to us. His face is turned towards us. He keeps pursuing us, ultimately displayed in Jesus, who would give his life and go to the cross for us. His pursuit, his pursuit is that deep, that high, that wide, that long. It's unbelievable. And God's coming for us even in those times when we're Genesis 3-9. And then Adam answers, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So here he is running and hiding. Do you know where that comes into the human? Genesis 3. Are we pretty good at that? We're pretty good at that. And running in fear, not a healthy fear, but this is an unhealthy, kind of a scared posture with God. It's like, you've been with God in the cool of the garden all along and now you're running and hiding from him. Yes, sin has entered. And then God says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now, anytime God asks questions in the Bible, it's never for his sake. It's always for the sake of the one being asked. So skeptics will look at this and say, you see, God doesn't know anything. He doesn't know everything. That's a complete misunderstanding of basic literature here. As parents, we do this all the time. You're getting your young ones ready for school, and at the doorway you say, hey, Johnny, where's your backpack? Does mom know where his backpack is? Of course mom knows where his backpack is, but you're asking for Johnny's development because you want him to take some ownership. You want him to grow. That's what God's doing. 
He's asking Adam and Eve, hey, did you do what you said you shouldn't, I said you shouldn't do? He knows, but he's wanting them to take some ownership. Let's see how that works out. Verse 12, Adam says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me from fruit from the tree and I ate it. Whoa, okay. How's this working out? So God says to Adam, hey, how'd we get here? Who climbed the fence? Who took the fruit? Where, how'd we get here? Hey, notice he throws Eve under the bus, but he throws God under the bus a little bit. Did you see that? The woman you gave to me. You started this whole thing, God. And then God goes to Eve. He's like, well, let's see what Eve has to say. The Lord says to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So Adam throws Eve under the bus, Eve throws serpent under the bus, and God's just looking for somebody to take some responsibility. And so employers, do you see now? Employers, you want to know where running and hiding and blame shifting and sidestepping responsibility come from? Genesis 3. You want to know why it's so difficult to find honest, hardworking, team-building people to hire? Genesis 3. You want to know why there's so many HR policies in HR seminars? Genesis 3. You want to know why your HR manager looks like he or she looks like? Genesis 3. And why anyone picks that occupation? That's crazy. Genesis 3. Because look, this is a picture of your Bible with work without sin. Right here. Here's work without sin. And here it is. Here's the work you go to tomorrow morning. This is what it means to work in the Genesis 3 fallen world of work. Even when it's at its best, it's broken. That explains a lot of the environments that we're all working in. It's complicated, it's difficult, it's messy. It's Monday morning. Listen to how Jonathan Edwards, uh, I put this quote in your notes because I thought it was really something I want you to reflect on this week. Um, Edwards said, he was one of the, you know, the founder, kind of the founding leaders, first great awakening, pastor in Massachusetts in the 1700s. Here's what he said about this. The ruin that the fall brought upon the soul of man consists very much in his losing of the nobler and more benevolent principles of his nature and falling wholly under the power and government of self-love. Before, and as God created him, he was exalted and noble and generous, but now he's debased and ignoble and selfish. Immediately upon the fall, hear this, the mind of man shrank from its primitive greatness and expandedness to an exceeding smallness and contractedness. Oh my goodness. That's the team you're going to work with tomorrow. That's your department. That's your workplace setting. That's your company. That's your group. That's the team. That's you and the team. And that's why even when it's at its best, even when it's going great, that's why it's just, it's complicated, it's messy, it's difficult, it's a grind. That's why it's so exhausting at the times because God says there's a consequence for jumping the fence and taking the fruit. The consequence, I put in your notes, is called theologically the curse. Look at verse 17 of Genesis 3. Here's the curse. Cursed is the ground because of you, speaking about their fall into sin. 
through painful toil. You will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. So here's a picture. God created work, and then he cursed it, thorns and thistles. Now, it's primarily agrarian, of course, right? Adam and Eve are just working the land. And so it's like every time you put the hands to the plow to work this land, sweat of the brow, thorns and thistles, you're going to grind it out. The role of the curse is to remind us that we've sinned and we desperately need grace. How effective do you think the curse is? Whew, pretty strong. I'm not going to get into the lady's curse. I'm not able to comment on that side of it. Not wise for me to go down that road. But I think if you ask ladies who've gone down the road of childbirth, and he said, pain when you give birth to children will be a part of this cursed reality you live in now. He chose work as a part of the curse. He said, I'm going to make it that you can't get up on a Monday morning and go to whatever sales meeting, whatever project team, whatever thing you're working, whatever plow you put your hands to. Thorns and thistles, complicated and difficult and messy. Man, there's going to be a headwind against you when you're pushing it. Say, why, why, why God do that way? Because he wants to make sure his humans don't ever forget how significant this moment is that we've fallen into sin and we desperately need his grace. And if you've been in the working world for any length of time, you've had many a days where you're driving home and if you haven't whispered it, now you can start whispering it. Man, God, you really nailed it with that curse. That curse is really solid. It's about as messed up The whole concept of stress-free work exited the human experience in Genesis 3. It's a flaming snowflake from Genesis 3. Some people say to me, oh, pastor, I want to come work for the church. It's going to be a whole lot better. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I want to rethink that. Because the commonality of any workplace, a church, any business, any school, any hospital, wherever you're working, humans, fallen, environment, cursed. So even when work is going great, man, you're going to be running into a headwind, thorns, thistles, complicated, difficult, and messy. So work is a gift from God, not a byproduct of sin, first pillar. Second pillar at the core aspect of our Imago Day is to work. We're made with a six-in-one rhythm. You lean into that, you work, and you live into that. And then thirdly, even work when it's at its best. It's broken. These are three pillars in this theology of work. And so let's connect it now to Monday morning as I draw this to a close. So I put three things in your notes. Say, okay, what is, how, how does it make a difference for you tomorrow morning when you're heading into wherever you're heading into in your work week? First thing is, I think the application would be we enter into the chaos of our work with the light of His presence. Now, some of you have been whispering all kinds of things about how messed up, like, oh, my boss this, he that, she that, these dynamics, that. it's all messed up, it's all just a disaster, and, and there I am in the middle of it, and, and you're like, God's like, yeah, that's why you're there. Like, you're there with the light of His presence as a follower of Jesus to move towards the chaos. With God's help, you move to that which is formless and empty. You bring shape to the shapeless. With God's help, you fill the empty. That's what you do as a follower of Jesus. Enter into that chaos. Enter into the mess of that situation. That's what we do. So as we approach our week this week, 
Let's not approach it kind of looking for chaos free. That's, that's not helpful at all. There's really no work environment that's free of that. It's filled with formless and empty. It's part of the curse. It's fallen. So when you're thrust into the middle of all that, say, okay, God, with your help and by your grace, I want to move towards it and fill that which is empty and bring shape to that which is shapeless. And then secondly, we want to move the questions from why to what? Instead of why me, why this, why now, to what does God want to do in me through this? God, what are you up to? You've put me in this group, with this team, at this time, in these circumstances. What are you up to with that? I think that's, how, that's important. And then lastly, we need to ask God to help. Hey, see the person beyond the stick. As one writer said, it's the porcupine dilemma. Meaning, you just get a bunch of porcupines working together, and it's just it's thorns and thistles. You're just like all these sticks and jabs, like... You know, yeah, it just, and so you just go, okay, Lord, how do I see the people that I'm working with the way you see them? And even the ones that are the most difficult, the ones that irritate you the most deeply, like, God, could you help me? Could you help me see them and have your heart for them? Dallas Willard, one sentence for working world. This one sentence has helped me more than anything else. If you don't, forget, if you don't remember anything else from this morning, maybe just this one sentence from Dallas I think would be worth the whole time this morning. Here's what Dallas says. Two main elements of job discipleship. One, work diligently with Jesus' help. Two, offer gentle non-cooperation with evil. There you go. Happy Monday. You're welcome. (laughs) Work diligently with Jesus' help. We desperately need his help. We want to work diligently like Colossians 3. As unto the Lord. It's the Lord Christ we're serving. We ask for his help. And then we offer gentle, non-cooperation with evil. Because you will not lack for the opportunities to jump fences and pull forbidden fruit. Probably by 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. So a friend of mine, when I would ask him, he owns his own company, and I would ask him, how's it going, what's going on, and how's the things going in his working world? And he would say to me often, God is using the anvil of work to shape me. Anybody else been feeling that? God is using the anvil of work to shape me. And by that, he was just referring to whatever the unique circumstances were, that primarily the 90,000 hours is about what the average American will spend in some kind of a work setting. He was using the 90,000 hours to build the kingdom of Jesus more completely in his heart, primarily at work. And I can say to you, man, these last two years, I feel like it's been a graduate level program in spiritual formation in the workplace. I don't know if anybody else is feeling this. I'm feeling it. Just the degrees of complexity and all that we've been living through as people and just as a, as a leader, I've made more mistakes these last two years than, I mean, I've said I'm sorry and forgive me and I mean, I've sent emails I wish I wouldn't have sent. I've said things I wish I wouldn't have said. I've done things and made decisions I wish I could redo just over and over. It's just been this relentless two-year PhD formation program. Primarily, the location is work. Where he's just taking me to my knees and exposing my weaknesses, my fallenness, my selfishness, my everything else inside, primarily in this 90,000-hour crucible of work. And it's been helping me see, you know, at the end of the run with all this stuff with work, you know, at the end of our 90,000 hours, wherever the clock runs out, 
at the end of the run, you know, it's not going to be really about what we did with all those hours of work. You know, all of the stuff we're working on, it's pretty much all going to be gone, forgotten, shelved. Like, the actual work itself is it. When you get to the end of the run, you stand before God, you're not going to present your piles of work and projects and accomplishment. You're not going to present that to Him. You know what you're going to present to Him? You're going to present the kind of person you've become. That's your offering you're going to give to God. Which makes me think, at the end of the day, all this stuff about work and all the challenges and joys of it, it's primarily in God's eyes about who we're becoming while we're working than it is about specifically what we're doing. And even these past two years, I suspect for all of us, it's about, hey, I think God's probably ratcheted up and accelerated a lot of formation in a lot of our hearts these last two years in the midst of the chaotic mess. And so worship team, come on up. I'm going to close with this prayer that I'm leaving you for the week. So I gave you this prayer in your notes because I'd like you to spend the week tomorrow morning on your way into the office, on your way to the classroom, on your way wherever you're going tomorrow, entering into your week of work. Stay-at-home moms or stay-at-home dads as you're getting up and getting about your week and all that. Put this prayer somewhere, take a picture of it, put it on your phone, stick it somewhere in your car, and just somewhere at the beginning of your day, each day this week, could you just pull it out and pray it through? It's, I call it a prayer of vocation. Lord, thank you that I have awakened this morning with breath of life in my lungs. Each day is a gift, and I'm grateful for today. Thank you for work, for a place to imitate you, and an occupation to offer my best to you. Deepen my awareness of your presence throughout the day. Teach me what it means to worship as I work, laboring with a heart of integrity and with hands of skill. Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you for the gift of work Thank you for such clarity in your word about where we spend such a large chunk of our lives. Um, thank you for perspective. Thank you for grounding our work and who you are and help us as followers of Jesus to step forward and enter into the chaos of whatever it is we face this week. Help us to do it with the light of your presence, that you would be our strength and our help, that you would give us energy to offer gentle non-cooperation with evil and that your kingdom would go forward wherever we are in all those spaces that we would take this worship we have together here on Sunday and that you would infiltrate and infuse all of our work on Mondays. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.